Welcome to the Optimum Nutrition Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. ION is one of Europe's longest established nutritional therapy training providers. Our aim is to support people in making a positive impact on their lives with food. I'm Alice Ball, Communications Officer at ION. Each week, I'm going to be interviewing a guest from the world of nutrition. We'll be delving into their health journey and touching on some common health conditions with the aim of inspiring you to be your most optimally healthy and happiest self. I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Shaw for today's episode. Katie is a former criminal justice lawyer turned registered nutritional therapist. Today, we chat about why she decided to reroute her career to nutrition before diving into today's conversation on nutrition before, during and after pregnancy. Katie brings a real warmth and understanding to this topic having juggled becoming a first-time mum herself during her final year of studies, as well as a global pandemic. As always, if you want to find out more about nutritional therapy, including ION's courses and public clinic, visit ion.ac.uk. But for now, here is Katie Shaw on the Optimum Nutrition Podcast. Katie Shaw, welcome to the Optimum Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. So I always start by asking my guests to name their top three kitchen essentials. So these are three ingredients that you always have in your fridge, always have in your kitchen cupboards and give you that little peace of mind. So I would say lemons, garlic and probably olive oil. Three classic ingredients. Because I feel like with those three, you can make a salad dressing, you can make a quick pasta, make a nice tea, I guess, apart from the olive oil. You know, I would panic if I didn't have those three in my cupboard yeah. for a long time. So, Katie, you are a barrister. Yeah. And you worked in criminal justice for 10 years. I did. So have you always wanted a career that involves helping people? I guess so, yeah. So when I did my A-levels, I was quite boring, actually, in my approach. I sat there and I thought, right, I'm going to do one language. I'm going to do one science, I'm going to do one humanities subject, and then one subject that just I completely loved. So I did A-level biology, which, by the way, I should probably tell you, like, I did not do well. I just about scraped a D. So if anybody's thinking of studying nutritional therapy and is worried about their science knowledge, if I can do it, you can do it. So yeah, I did biology, I did English literature, I did dance and drama, and then I did law. And then when I got to doing law, I just, I fell in love with it. And it was, it was kind of more the advocacy I'm a massive chatterbox for anybody that knows me. So it's that combination of helping people, but also being on your feet, standing up, arguing with judges, that kind of thing. So I think that's where that came from. And then I just sort of, yeah, I had a bit of kind of blinkers on in my early 20s and my teenage years. I just sort of went for it. And I thought, right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a barrister. I'm going to get called to the bar. And yeah, just off I went, really. And did you think at that stage that you'd ever change career? Oh, no, 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 no. So it was... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It just, it seemed to be a process of maybe a bit of burnout and just going in so hard and so fast, just bolting out into the career field and not actually stopping at any point and thinking, is this actually what I want anymore? I think that's really, really important for anybody. And that's one of the kind of key things that I would tell anybody in their early stages of any career. Just keep checking in with yourself. Just make sure that you are still enjoying what you're doing because there's absolutely no point to doing it if you don't wake up every day and think I can't wait to go to work and I just got to that stage where I thought I don't love this anymore I don't love the stress I don't love the late nights I still loved being in the magistrates courts and the crown courts and I still love the advocacy and the trials and the witnesses and 
all of the like the really good stuff but you know as with any job there are downsides as well you know the paperwork waiting to get paid all of that kind of stuff it wasn't enough for me and mm-hmm. I just I strongly sort of fell out of love with it and around the age of 30 I think it was 31 I ended up having a few personal challenges as well and it, it just all came at once and I just sat there and I just thought I'm really not happy what do I want to do and let's let's kind of change this and I had absolutely no idea that I would be going into nutritional therapy whatsoever so complete bolt out of the blue for me yeah because growing up did you have an awareness of food did you really enjoy healthy eating not necessarily but I mean I was always aware my mum and my granny were always in the kitchen Um, I was never allowed in the kitchen with them it was very much their domain and it was sort of go away you're in the way but I was always conscious of food being made meals being made from scratch we didn't really eat out we didn't get takeaways takeaways were a big luxury for us it wasn't necessarily healthy eating as you would think of it now it was the sort of 80s and 90s early staples of sort of spag bol chicken casserole mince gravy potatoes that kind of thing Mm. um and so yeah it wasn't actually until I started thinking about my career change that I thought what is it that I really enjoy doing and one of the things that I can't remember where I read but somebody said to me if you really want to find out what your passion is in life think about the section of books that you gravitate to when you walk into a bookshop and for me, it had always been the cookery books. It had always been the health and wellbeing books, the kind of self-help section, because I didn't even know nutritional therapy existed as a discipline. I knew about dietitians and there was this term nutrition, but I didn't understand that there was a crossover between sort of the biochemistry and the holistic side of um, helping people. I think I must have sat on the fence for about three years and been umming and ahhing about coming to ION for about three years before I bit the bullet and actually did it. So think it what happened was I kind of thought where do I gravitate to in the bookshop and I thought oh it's food and then I just started doing a bit of research I'd um, discovered the I quit sugar movement that was happening around sort of 2014 and it all just kind of as wellness became this really popular genre all of a sudden that's when it all sort of kicked off for me. And how did discovering nutrition and starting the course impact the way that you then ate and the choices that you made in your lifestyle? Oh, uh, massively. It's one of those things that once you know it, you can't unknow it. And uh, yeah, I now can't look at sort of a McDonald's or something in the same way. But I am very much on the 80-20 principle to eating. So, you know, 20% of the time, cake, takeaways, wine, you know, definitely in moderation. It's a good thing. But yeah, it really, I'd, like I said, I'd already started doing the I Quit Sugar stuff myself and having a greater awareness about the impact of sugar and how much better I felt when I ate lots and lots more veggies because I think at the time I thought oh my my diet's not too bad and then you start your lectures and you start understanding sort of food as medicine and and the biochemical processes that it supports and you think gosh actually no I really could do a lot better and then slowly you start making those small sustainable changes that I am teach you about yeah now I just completely different completely different and I've noticed that not just my daily energy levels but you know every kind of aspect of my life from like, you know, my periods, my hormones, my skin, everything has just got better. So nothing bad comes from eating vegetables, does it? It doesn't at all. <laughs> and I suppose you probably what you discovered was the personalised element yes. of nutrition. Perhaps your diet was good, but you fine tuned it for yourself a little bit more. That's exactly it. So I think it's really great how much available information there is in the public domain around healthy eating and about different types of diets there are. And I think what Ion really taught me was just that one size does not fit all. And this personalised medicine, this personalised approach is actually the key to health and wellness and optimising your health. And I very much see that with clients in clinic. I have them come to me and they say, do you know what, I've tried everything. You know, I've got IBS, I've tried everything and 
none of it's working I sort of say well you might have tried everything but you might not have tried everything that works for you Mm. because like I said the books that are out there it's really great that you're educating yourself and I would never discourage anybody from trying to do that about their health and wellness but just sometimes it's that next level of personalization that can really make the difference so then during your studies you led the department for education school food and obesity policy team yeah yeah so I knew that I couldn't go back to working full-time and studying full-time. I knew that that would completely clash. And so the civil service have been amazing. They're incredibly flexible. They let me do compressed hours while I was studying. So I worked a full-time week, but I compressed it into four days, essentially. And Wednesday was my study day. And um, I would try and cram all of my eye on stuff um, Mm -hmm. because I did the distance learning, not the attendance. So I had complete flexibility in how I was studying, which was really great. Because sometimes I, you know, I always got pregnant in my final year. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great idea. Just had another commitment in. And I really needed that sort of flexibility to sort of binge watch my lectures and do all my assignments as and when I could. And so, yeah, I, I was um, leading childhood obesity and school food policy. So that's looking after the legislation, which regulates what children can eat in schools throughout the school day. That's tying in with the work that Henry Dimbleby did on his school food plan. He's now leading on the national food strategy, trying to improve the quality of food across the whole system the kind of farm to fork movement yeah and so that really was the kind of complementary backbone which gave me steady income and flexibility to then pursue this passion which would eventually be my livelihood so I'm incredibly grateful for that yeah and would you have even got onto that side of the policy if you hadn't studied nutrition no definitely not so I'd got to the stage when I was having this sort of like mid-20s crisis I guess (laughs) around what I wanted to do Um, and I was thinking do you know what I really you know I really want to change direction I then went to work in the Ministry of Justice and that's how I got into the civil service because I was working predominantly in southeast London magistrates and crown courts and I knew that I didn't want to be kind of out in the field anymore I thought maybe I can alleviate some of the frustrations with my job by going into policy and criminal justice policy Um, and so I thought right I'll go and work for the Ministry of Justice It'll be stable hours, stable income, things will get better. And then obviously didn't because the frustrations that I had, I just transferred into that role. Mm. But then it did kind of force me when I signed up to ION to think, well, maybe there was something I can do in food in government. And then when I started looking into it, there was loads and loads and loads. And I really liked the idea of change and education around school food. And, and I think especially with children, it's so important to get them young, get them understanding about where food comes from and handling it and stuff. And, you know, sometimes you, you talk to kids and sometimes you show them a tomato and they don't realise that it comes from a tomato plant. All they know is a ketchup bottle, which yeah. is a bit sad. So I, I don't know why I thought, oh, maybe there's something in government. But I just had that kind of flash of inspiration. And thank goodness I did. Because, yeah, it just gave me that wonderful opportunity to and to work with so many really incredibly amazing and motivated stakeholders in that school food space you will not find anyone who is just really sort of relaxed or laid back about their job. They are all incredibly passionate, whether that's the big hitters, like I said, Henry Dimbleby and Jamie Oliver, all the way through to the little grassroots organisations that are now doing amazing things with the the new holiday food and activity programmes to help feed um, children who don't have access to healthy food otherwise, especially, you know, as we've seen with the food parcels and the pandemic and stuff. So yeah, I just feel incredibly lucky that I've you know, got to experience that. Yeah, which is fantastic. Mm. Did you then take a back seat from that? So is that something you're still involved in? Yeah, so I'm still doing that at the moment because I really want to keep my hand in and I, I wasn't quite ready to let it go. So I went on maternity leave in January 2020 and then the pandemic hit. So I had the baby and he was six weeks old when we went into lockdown. So that's been really yeah. interesting being a new mum in lockdown because we haven't been to baby groups. We haven't done the kind of quote unquote normal experience. 
And I knew that when I would graduate in February, I wasn't fully ready to start doing my clinic full time because, I mean, the idea terrified me. I've never run a business before. Although I have to say, I am very supportive. You have a um, practice management module in the final year, so you're not sort of cast out to the wolves. It's not just, you know, graduating goodbye. But I just knew that for me, because I had the baby, I wanted a bit of a stable income. And yeah, Department for Education have been really flexible in letting me return back to work. So yeah, that's been really, really helpful. And I suppose at some point I'm going to have to make a decision because clinic is really, really busy right now um, about um, how much work I do there. But I will forever be grateful for the time that I've spent doing that. And we've obviously touched on the fact that you're a new mum yourself now. And we're going to chat a little bit about fertility and Mm -hmm. nutrition around it today. So at what point did your focus turn to reproductive health? My partner and I, he and I talked about this sort of nebulous idea of having a baby. Like, should we have a baby? Should we have a baby? And then when we were sort of talking about, I think we just need to do it. I think we just need to make a decision. You can't just say, oh, we can have a baby and then it magically happens. I had done the female health modules at ION. I already had that basic level of understanding, but it wasn't until I then started looking and I knew a few of the practitioners in the field anyway. There's some amazing practitioners who already have graduated from ION who deal with this. Um, Angelique Panagos is great for hormone health. Sandra Greenbank, yeah. you know, she's like the pioneer for fertility. And it wasn't until I started really deep diving into, oh, actually, there is so much you can do to prepare your body for having a baby and understanding that sort of optimum three to five month window, even before you start trying. It's not just a simple case of taking a a pregnancy or prenatal multivitamin, you know, you follic acid, you're all set. So, yeah, I really not experimented on myself, but I definitely used myself as a kind of practice case study just to see what works. And it must have worked because I got pregnant first time of trying. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, I was 35. So all, you know, all of the stuff you hear in the media around, oh, your fertility drops off at 30, you'll never have a baby, it'd be a real struggle just simply wasn't the case for me so I am yeah living proof that it does not have to be incredibly hard yeah and I suppose nutrition might not be an area that a lot of people consider when they're trying to conceive so were there any sort of nuggets that you've learned or myths as it were around getting pregnant oh loads like I said one of the big ones is your fertility takes a nose drive after you hit 30 not true and the saying around a woman is born with all of the eggs that she'll ever have and, you know, there's nothing you can do. That's it. You've got them. That is true to a certain extent. Yes, you're never going to magically grow any more eggs. But it's simply not true that diet and lifestyle can't make a positive impact because it really, really can. I have seen people who have been diagnosed by their GP with quote unquote unexplained fertility. And um, just by doing a few set of sustainable long term changes around diet and lifestyle and fertility is the sum of all parts. That's one of the big things that I've learned. It's not just what you're eating. But it's also, you know, how you're eating, your environment, your stress levels, your Mm. sleep is a huge one. There's lots and lots of sort of puzzle pieces that I put together in clinic. And so, yeah, for me, it's just, you know, don't let anyone tell you that there's not positive changes that you can't make through diet and lifestyle. It really can make a difference. And even if you have been given a diagnosis of endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, some really common but quite painful and sometimes debilitating conditions that can really impact pregnancy and fertility don't kind of get despondent because come and see people like us this is what we are specifically trained to help you with and it's one of those things that sort of the more you learn and the more you think you know the more the human body baffles you and you think wow I'm always learning in this job so yeah it don't kind of give up and I wish that we gave the message to women that you would prepare your body for a marathon or any big competitive event, whether that's like a triathlon or something, months and months and months in advance, you train for that. And yet we're not told 
the same for this nine month, I mean, really, we say it takes 12 months to make a baby, um, period that's going to completely change your whole body. You know, mm. your, your body, when you grow a baby, literally rearranges its whole organs to accommodate this new life. So I would say to anybody considering having a baby, don't leave nutrition until the last minute. It should be your first resource that you look at exploring. And I suppose the area of fertility too, it's so many aspects of it. It's not just getting pregnant. You support women through pregnancy and beyond pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And this is it. So it's first off, there's the prenatal preparation. That's just kind of one arm of it, like you say. And then there is getting pregnant. And often some of the difficulty can be around staying pregnant. Sadly, recurrent miscarriage can be an issue that I help to support in in clinic, helping women get pregnant after baby loss having a healthy pregnancy navigating those nine months especially you know the first trimester can be horrendous I spent a month in bed with hives I had a random immune outbreak I have the doctors have no idea what it was and I was just covered top to toe in hives and it was just awful so your body does crazy things when it's pregnant because like I said it's accommodating this new life and so yeah helping women navigate pregnancy it could be you know extreme morning sickness extreme fatigue often iron levels take a battering um, and then in that immediate fourth trimester that postnatal period those first acute three months where your body is recalibrating your hormones are still adjusting physically your body your organs are slowly moving back into place you might have had um, internal tears you might have had a c-section which is major abdominal surgery so there is so much support that we need to give expectant wanting to be mums new mums the whole spectrum so if we take the example of prenatal, what are some of the factors that can influence your chances of getting pregnant? Oh, lots of different things. So like I said, how much sleep you're getting, what your diet looks like, how healthy your diet is. Sometimes it's not just what you're eating, but how you're eating. Are you super stressed? Are you rushing it? Because we know that digestion works when you're in a really calm and you know that rest and digest state, that lovely parasympathetic nervous system state and often we're so busy nowadays we're just eating at our desk we're bolting our food down we're not being mindful about eating so just something as simple as that compromised digestion means you're not getting access to all the nutrition you need to support your basic metabolic processes there can be genetic factors there can be things like autoimmune conditions that might affect your fertility related to your thyroid for example your digestion is a huge one there's a huge link between hormone health and digestion and so your, you know, your liver, we look in clinic, we look at not just your digestive organs, but also how your liver's working because the whole biotransformation and elimination systems of the body is really, really important because you want to be making sure that your hormones are being effectively eliminated from your body every month and you're not experiencing sort of excessive PMS symptoms and heavy periods or excessively light periods because that could be an indication that something might be slightly off. Yeah. So yeah, it really is a whole spectrum. It's not just about the, the kind of food that you eat and how much exercise you do. Um, how much water you're drinking, how hydrated you are, what your blood flow is like to the uterus, that's incredibly important. And stress, stress is a big one. It can be one of those really annoying things that you go to the doctor and they just say, oh, just calm down, just relax and it'll happen. Mm. You know, when you relax, it'll happen. It's just, and you know, if you're right in the middle of trying to conceive and it's not been happening, the last thing you want to hear is, oh, just calm down. <laughs> so yeah, there's a multitude of factors. And in my clinic, I tend to look at what I am called ATM. So that's your antecedents, your triggers and your mediators. And so it's the, like I said, your antecedents or your inherited conditions, genetic predisposition and risk factors. Then your triggers could be a sort of, it could be an infection. It could be a course of antibiotics that maybe imbalance your gut a little bit. It could be you picked up um, a stomach flu from being abroad, something like that's quite common. And, and then your mediators are your day-to-day sort of things that are keeping you feeling unwell and perpetuating your symptoms. So we really do look at you as a whole person, 
and it's really good to look at males as well as females so everything that I'm talking about for you know preparing for fertility it, it is a, equally applicable to both of the sexes guys have a huge role to play in terms of their sperm health and their overall health as well so don't just leave it to the ladies this is what I was going to ask actually do you tend to work with couples or individuals both so some people prefer to come to me alone they don't feel as comfortable talking about the health in front of their partner and that's absolutely fine I prefer to see couples initially just because I like to get an understanding of what's going on for both partners because you know fertility is a shared journey I know that it's physically the woman that carries and creates the baby but the men do have or even if you are a same-sex couple your partner does have Mm. a huge emotionally supporting role which can be incredibly important and so how you are both living your life and how you're both feeling and engaging with one another I mean often I do a lot of referrals for couples counselling because I'm talking therapies obviously outside of my remit as nutritional therapist but having that emotional support and emotional resilience from an objective supportive other practitioner can be really really beneficial yeah so yeah I'm it's a it's a bit of I'm kind of led by the client so like I said I like to see both partners if I can but I equally understand if you would rather see me alone because you feel like um, you will get more kind of benefit or it's more sensitive yeah, but it's so fantastic because there sounds like there's just so many ways that you can support like mm. a healthy and happy pregnancy. So many people must just think it's luck of the draw and you've either got great sperm, great eggs, or you haven't. 100%, 100%. And I think that's a real key takeaway as well. Do not stress about this as well, because I hear so many clients hear lots of terms from their GP and from other well-meaning friends, aunties, partners, cousins, dog walker who got pregnant after you know they sat and meditated under a full moon as soon as you start telling people you're trying for a baby the world and their wife has got some advice for you it is multifactorial but yes there are things that you can do so don't panic and we're always looking for consistency not perfection you do not have to be perfect or in perfect health to have a baby your body will do the work and because i see so many people who've you know cut out lots of things like for example gone really incredibly low carb diets or completely eliminated all of their you know, alcohol, they weren't drinking that much anyway, but they'd like a glass of wine maybe on a Friday night as a treat and they've completely taken that away and their chocolate. And often sometimes I'm adding those things back in, which might sound really counterintuitive for a nutritional therapist. But like I said at the start, it's about that 80-20 rule. You've got to really be in a really calm and happy state. And if you're constantly miserable, hating what you're eating, not enjoying the process at all, is that really the right environment to make a baby? And uh, I, yeah, I just like to bring a bit of kind of fun... In. And I know one of your previous guests, Nicola Moore, who is wonderful, I think her approach, her sensible approach to, to eating and the way she approaches clients in clinic has been a real inspiration for me in the way I approach my clients. Because, yeah, it's all about that healthy relationship, which I think sometimes we can get that can get lost with the mainstream media messages because it's all you've got to be on the paleo diet or you've got to go low carb or got to be actins or you've got to be plant based. Yeah. As we've touched on before, it's about what works for you. Okay, about you. It's individualized, personalized for you. So then during pregnancy as well, there must be so many myths around that. For instance, morning sickness. Is that something that you either you have or you don't and you're stuck with it? No. uh, (laughs) um, So morning sickness, they are not quite sure what causes morning sickness. I mean, there's lots of different ideas and hypotheses around it whether it's nutrient depletion whether it's a hormonal surge whether it's sort of psychosomatic sometime I mean there we're not talking about the extreme HG the condition where you are you know often hospitalized and put on medication for morning sickness but the biggest myth is that 
it's not always in the morning. Uh, my sickness was in the evening. I couldn't tolerate uh, an evening meal for about four months, which was horrendous because oh, wow. I love eating and I love food. And it suddenly just felt like the joy of cooking was taken away from me. And I just I just sat and had sort of a couple of miserable slices of toast oh, for no. a couple of months. I know. So when I could get back to eating, I was just oh, all over it. Yeah, so there's, there's lots of myths around kind of what you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating, what you're going to feel like. Some people are like, get that first trimester out of the way and second trimester, you're superwoman and you'll feel amazing. Some people hit the second trimester and they're like, where's this energy that you promised me? I thought I was supposed to be rushing around feeling like Superman. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, again, that personalized message about your pregnancy will feel very different to anybody else's. Take your biofeedback cues from your body. Listen to how your body's feeling. Check in because often pregnancy is the first time we've really sat down and thought, how am I feeling today? Because yeah. you're, you're almost sort of forced to wake up and think, okay, do I feel nauseous? Do I feel like I can brush my teeth today mm. without puking? Do I fancy breakfast? Do I not fancy breakfast? And, you know, and listening to those, those sleepy cues, giving yourself time to rest. Don't try, you know, power through. Don't let the old wives' tales put you off or influence you. And don't make them let them make you feel bad. So if you're, like I said, you're being told, oh, by the second trimester, you'll be amazing and flying high. If you still just want to hunker down and nap and eat loads of carbs that's fine. You need to just do what works for you and makes you feel good. I think that's a really important message, actually, because as you said, works both ways. I'm sure there's Mm -hmm. lots of women who have this expectation that they should just be breezing through pregnancy and still juggling loads of things at once. And then there are other people who are probably saying, oh, you're going to feel bad. And if you don't feel bad and actually you have a very easy ride during your pregnancy, you could probably feel quite guilty in that respect as well. Definitely. And I think there's a lot of judgment around as soon as you get pregnant or as soon as you've had a baby. I mean, the judgment around new parents is off the scale. You almost feel guilty. If I had an incredibly easy pregnancy, I had evening sickness. I wasn't actually sick, but it was just incredible nausea. And the hives, the hives were awful for a month. But other than that, I had smooth sailing. I had no gestational diabetes. Mm. My blood pressure was fine. The baby was growing well. And I almost felt guilty for sort of admitting it. You you find yourself sort of whispering to people when they're telling you about how difficult their pregnancy is. And they look at you with that expectation of sort of you two. And you say, no, actually, mine's been amazing. I love being pregnant and Mm. can't wait to do it again. There is that just kind of take the pressure off. You're growing a new life. You're doing amazing things. If the only thing you did today was keep yourself alive and the baby alive you're winning exactly you're winning and not everyone will enjoy being pregnant it's okay to want to have a baby for so long and then the minute you get pregnant you feel really horrible and then you are feeling guilty for feeling horrible because you think especially if you've gone through something like IVF and it's like I said or a surrogacy and you're, you know, you're dealing with a baby who doesn't sleep through the night and you think I've, I've waited for this baby for so long why aren't I enjoying this that's totally okay. You can feel love, fear, shame, guilt. It's all completely valid. I think this whole, as soon as you get pregnant, you should feel you know, amazingly grateful, whatever. No, it's okay to feel crap. It's okay to feel, yeah. you know, to say, actually, I hate this. I, you know, I can't wait to give birth. That's totally okay. I would really encourage women to talk about this with friends, with family, whoever is a kind of supportive and safe person for you to talk about this that might be um, a therapist or a counsellor or your GP but don't burden yourself with that should I should feel in a certain way I should want to do this I should want to do that no you take your pregnancy how you take it 
and what feels good for you. And I suppose that applies to post-pregnancy as well, because yeah. women must have just such different experiences and then your nutritional needs. How, how are they going to be different after you give birth? Yeah, so massively. I did find with my pregnancy, I had a lot of nutritional therapy practitioners saying to me, you know, the fourth trimester, first three months after you've given birth, the baby doesn't really realise that it's out of the womb yet. It's really unfamiliar environment. It's suddenly gone from this warm, dark, cosy environment. It's all wet and safe and it can hear your heartbeat to suddenly being cast out in this bright light. It's, you know, being asked to wear clothes for the first time, nappies. Um, It's looking for you all the time, that constant reassurance. And so lots of the nutritional therapy practitioners that I know were just like, take it easy those first three months. And often in different cultures, they have the kind of lying in period where women are taken care of with their aunties and their grandmothers and things. And it's, I mean, I don't have any close family next to me. I would have loved to have been able to just sort of shut the doors and exclude everybody for a few weeks. But um, especially I know a lot of women are sort of actively encouraged to get up, get out, go and face the day, go for a walk, get outside. And yeah. that was the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't have postnatal depression or anything. And I just think, especially for women who are struggling with their hormones and um, their emotional health, and um, on day three, when your milk comes in, your hormones kick your butt. You feel like PMS, but off the chart. And you're crying at everything and your boobs are sore. And whether you're breastfeeding or not, just when your milk comes in on day three, it's like nothing I've ever experienced. And so all suddenly you are not the most important person anymore. All of the healthcare attention goes to your baby. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the big things that I'm really, really passionate about is postnatal care, because I do often feel like, especially in mainstream healthcare services, and it, I suppose it's a resourcing issue that it is all, it comes all about the baby and mothers yeah. are often an afterthought. And actually, like you said, your nutritional needs are still really important, especially if you're breastfeeding, the demand for some of the micronutrients increase um like for example you know your calcium you need to be really aware of your calcium levels because it can impact your teeth and your bones and often what happens is that your body will draw from your natural stores if you haven't got enough levels like we know with sort of iron and other minerals because it just wants to pass it on to the baby because baby becomes a priority but then that often depletes you as the mother and hormones will be completely all over the place to a certain extent you sort of still feel pregnant even though you're not pregnant yeah. and you have this tiny human to keep alive which is terrifying absolutely terrifying they don't they don't come with a manual and um, they just hand them over to you and then they say good luck goodbye <laughs> and you think you're leaving me alone with this child you're trusting me what do I do I don't know what to do and my partner and I we just sat there and stared at our baby for sort of 24 hours going what are, we, what are we doing? What should we be doing? I guess we're stuck with this for life. Yeah, we were sort of, we were so amazed and in awe looking at this tiny being in his crib and nobody tells you, right, this might not be typical for every baby, but nobody tells you in the first sort of 24 hours typically, babies sleep a lot because they're exhausted from their, their birth journey, whether that's an abdominal birth or a vaginal birth. And so we were sort of looking at this baby rigid with fear, waiting for it to kind of cry or need a nappy change. I should have rested. I mean, my baby did not sleep through the night for at least seven months. So I should have taken the opportunity to sleep when I could. So for any new mums and dads out there, if it's your first time baby, sleep. Sleep when the baby sleeps. Everybody says it all the time. And it's. I know it's not possible during the day because you often don't want to and you're not sleepy. But um, that first day, if you can get some good kip in, it will, I think, set you up for the next few weeks ahead. But just go, kind of going back to your point around the nutritional demands, on a kind of basic calorific level for production of breast milk, you need a significant increase in calories. Your blood sugar balance is really, really important to give you that steady stream of energy. Mm. Most likely you're not getting a nice solid eight hours of sleep anymore. 
I mean, if your baby's one of those magical unicorns, well done, enjoy it. Um, but if your baby was doing what mine was doing, getting sort of anywhere between sort of 40 minutes to two hours sleep at a time, your blood sugar is going to be all over the place. So, you know, really focusing on fueling yourself with really good quality nutrition, making sure you get that protein to help your, your body physically repair the tissues. There's really good fats to help your hormones because we know that your sex hormones are made from cholesterol and, and good fats. So whilst it's lovely to be able to have an extra bit of chocolate and there, there is a kind of benefit to, to breastfeeding, you get to eat a lot more cake, um, I found, that you know don't disregard the kind of real basic fundamentals about having a good filling meal with all your carbs, your proteins, your fat, lots of brightly coloured veggies, all the kind of basic stuff that you know we know, like the Mediterranean diet, for example, is a great example to follow. But yeah, also just, I guess, just take that pressure off yourself because there is so much judgment and guilt from everybody you don't need to be doing that yourself yeah it's so interesting even you say that your calorie needs are higher after giving mm. birth because i suppose so many women might think during pregnancy i need yeah. to be eating more and then i need to bounce back once i've had my child and need to be eating less yeah i mean i really hate that bounce back thing and it's just not representative i mean i don't think i bounce back my body does not look like it used to i mean i don't look pregnant anymore but i certainly don't look like the woman i did before i got pregnant and that's you know that's fine some of you will get stretch marks some of you won't i mean most of the time it's genetic so there is only a certain amount of stuff that we can do mm. but kind of your your whole basic sort of needs change and I don't think it's the right time to be even thinking about body image right now and I, it is incredibly tricky because you've just had a baby you're leaking you're sore you're tired you're fed up hungry all the time I mean when you're breastfeeding the thirst is real making sure that you're staying hydrated is incredibly important so I used to keep a snack station and a big bottle of water at various points around the house when I was breastfeeding. So if I knew I was on the sofa, I would have sort of some protein balls that I made and some, or bought, no judgment, um, and a big stack of water and just have that sort of scattered around various places in the house because your nutritional demands are still incredibly important. And I think a lot of people are thinking, right, okay, now how can I lose the weight? How can I fit back into my old clothes and stuff? And you know, for four or five months, I was still wearing maternity clothes with the big stretchy waistbands, you know, the breastfeeding tops and things. So take the pressure off. Your body will naturally recalibrate to a place where it feels comfortable. And if that is then still a bit bigger, later on down the line, yeah, you can, when it's safe and you've been signed off by your GP and a physio, for example, you can definitely look at doing some safe weight loss. But I'd say, you know, in the first immediate period, Please don't be looking on Instagram and social media and Googling all of these images of these celebrities who walk down the Victoria's Secret, you know, runway with a flat tummy because that is not representative of normal life. Those people have got diet coaches, they've got personal trainers, they've got chefs, they've got physios on their own staff. You, as a normal (laughs) mum who's just birthed a human, what an amazing achievement. You don't have to look in a certain way. All you have to do, like I said, is if you keep yourself alive, and you keep the baby alive at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And I know it is easier said than done because I still struggle with body image 15 months later. Now, and those first three months is not the time for radical diets um, or calorie restriction. Is it quite a stripping it back to basics? Because obviously you mentioned as well that in your experience, you had very like small cycles Mm. where you could, you know, have time to yourself. For anyone listening that might think, oh gosh, when I'm meant to find the time to eat, is it more practical advice like eat when you can or should you be sticking to meal times? I think, again, it comes back to personalised nutrition and what works for you. So for some people, 
When we say sort of blood sugar balance, we're talking about keeping a steady amount of blood sugar level going in your body just to give you enough energy so you're not experiencing those incredible highs and then those crashing lows where you just want to reach for the biscuit tin. And so for some people, they need to constantly snack and you will know if this is you. You will be the kind of person who gets quite dizzy and quite hangry if you don't eat regularly. And you know that you're not the kind of person that can stick to those sort of three meals a day. And then other people will just go completely loopy and feel all over the place, quite wired, quite anxious if they snack all the time. So I think understanding sort of how you function best and, and it's OK if it changed. So if you were the kind of person here that had three key meals a day before you were pregnant and then since you've given birth, all of a sudden you're like, do you know what? I just I can't stick to those three meals a day because the baby's schedule or, you know, I eat more frequently. That's fine. I think pay attention to those cues that your body's giving you. Um, like I said, what worked for me was having some healthy snacks on hand. I think that sort of nesting period in the last couple of weeks before you give birth, something does kick in and you do start to, I mean, you do crazy things like ironing loads of muslins that you'll never iron again. I remember uh, putting it on social media and lots of mums laughing and saying, that's the last time you'll ever iron a muslin, trust me. And me thinking, what are you talking about? This is me as a new mum. This is going to be my life now. No, spoiler, that's never happened again. That was nesting. And I did do a huge batch cook. And then I froze loads of meals just so I could have sort of casserole stews because I gave birth in the winter. Mm. Um, so it was all of that really kind of nourishing of curries, casseroles, and it was really, really handy just to have some grab-and-go options. But there are ways that you can make really healthy, nutritious meals that don't have to take that long. Personally, if you have these tools available to you, if you have your slow cooker, crack that out. You can put some food on overnight. You pop all the ingredients in, you turn it on, you don't have to worry about it, and it's ready to go. Always, always make sure you're cooking for more than you need, because at this time, it's really handy just to have a backup. I've also got an Instant Pot, which is a pressure cooker, Um, And I would cook up big batches of sort of rice or pulses. And I would make sure I'd have things like tinned lentils and pulses in the the cupboard so that I could just pull stuff from the larder and just assemble. Because nine times out of ten cooking, where you have to chop and then stand up hob, etc. You can't do that if you are, you know, you've got a baby that needs to breastfeed for 40 minutes. Even carrying the baby in the sling, you can't really lean over the hob with a baby. Exactly. <laughs> it's not very safe. Yeah. So uh, things like microwavable packets of rice and quinoa and things that you can easily get in supermarkets, you know, don't advocate them all the time. But for that sort of acute time period where you're recalibrating and getting used to yourself and your new baby as a family, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And so try and find the ways that work for you as a family. Like I said, whether that's buying pre-made packets of salad leaves and then just adding in some already cooked protein. One of my favourite things was grabbing a bag of washed salad, organic salad leaves from the supermarket, chucking on an avocado, some cooked prawns from the supermarket, microwaving some quinoa, slosh of olive oil over the top. And there we go, simple salad in about two minutes. So Mm. it's not necessarily going to be easy and you will never have the free time that you used to have. But it's about kind of finding those pockets that work for you. So if you don't want to nap when the baby's napping and you think I'd much rather be doing something for myself, why not use, say, half an hour to batch cook something And like I said, it doesn't have to be something that requires lots of standing and stirring and pouring and chopping. It could be chucking something in the pressure cooker or the slow cooker or the oven and just letting it kind of run. There are loads of fantastic um, cookbooks that uh, have got really great advice for for new mums. Yeah, it doesn't have to be gourmet. No, it really doesn't. It can be something really, really basic. And I'll tell you what, Amelia Freer has got, I mean, I love Amelia, she's wonderful. Her recent cookbook had some really honest um, advice and feedback about when she became a new mum and she was saying how you know her diet went just completely to pot and what she started to do was introduce small changes and so she has a whole chapter on toast and toast toppings and it's so true all of a sudden 
you start looking at vehicles for, for nutrition in other ways. So toast, for example, you like there's nothing wrong with the old bit of peanut butter and banana on toast because that is delicious. It's lovely, and, yeah. Yeah, I had that for breakfast this morning. But you know, you can put avocado and a quick poached egg on there and that takes what five minutes. Mm. And you can mostly these are things you can do one handed if you're carrying a baby. So like I said, it doesn't have to be gourmet. It's just about making sort of small smart swaps or choices. And sort of maybe leaving, the, I know the biscuits are tempting, but sort of leave the biscuits and maybe see if you can make up some like protein balls or snack bars or something. Yeah. Stash them in the freezer and then you know they're good to go. Did you feel the pressure when you gave birth? Because you were in the final year of your nutrition yeah. studies too. <laughs> Did you think, oh my gosh, everyone's going to be looking at me as the, I, I suppose, how I should be eating post, post-pregnancy? post A little bit, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was terrified and I did stay off Instagram for a while I didn't I've only just recently got back on it because I just felt a lot of pressure around it because you almost don't want to be not that there would ever be a mass pile on because the people that follow me are really lovely but I just yeah I am terrified of sort of you know having a chocolate bar and then people being sort of like for shame for shame yeah and um, so yeah I, d- I definitely do think if you put, put yourself on social media there can be that pressure especially if you're a nutritional professional but on my account I really try to keep it real in my stories, you will see me without makeup on days where I've had, you know, three cups of caffeinated tea, which probably isn't a great idea. But I do, yeah, I do try to say, look, it's about balance. It's that 80-20 thing. And I'm not perfect. And I would hate anyone of my clients to think, oh, you know, she's perfect. Or on those days when I sort of slip or don't eat as healthy, are then sort of looking to point the finger because we're all human just take a load off I mean for example I had a kebab this week for dinner um it was a chicken cheese with lots of salad and and things so it wasn't the Donna one that they sort of shave but uh, yeah I don't want people to get an unrealistic expectation of what nutritional therapists eat like we're still we're still human I'm still learning and like I said earlier the more I know and understand about the body and food the more I'm like oh I'm motivated to make even more healthier changes and things yeah, because so you graduated in February this year. Yeah, I did. Very new to the one-to-one clinic life, I imagine, yeah. as well. I've been really lucky. So I live in Bedfordshire um, and I have a local clinic where I'm physically based a couple of days a week. And then I do remote consultations at home. And because I decided to start talking about fertility and, and pregnancy, I'd already had a little bit of a waiting list of people wanting to work for me, which I know is not the norm. So if you're an ION graduate and, and your clinic is not packed out yet... The mine isn't either, don't worry. <laughs> but I, yeah, I did start talking to people through my NCT group and I just said, look, this is what I'm doing and I'll be able to properly, legally qualify, give you advice and stuff soon. So that's kind of how my clinic has evolved and I am really, really fortunate in that word of mouth counts for a lot. Um, and so the local community that I'm serving and then on social media, I've got, like I said, really, really lovely people that I work with and the work seems to just, it's like a chain reaction. You, it's getting you know busier and busier. But yeah, I, I still can't believe that at the start of the year, I was, you know, preparing for my final exam and I was still, you know, I only finished training clinic in November last year. Yeah. And so less than a year later, I'm seeing actual real life people, which is, it's incredibly exciting. Do you almost get a bit of imposter syndrome sometimes oh, to think, massively. oh my gosh, here I am already working yeah, massively, with clients. Massively. Yeah, And especially because, like I said, there are some amazing women already in the field that I look to, like I reference to Sandra and Angelique and... Amelia Freer um I just think oh I'm who am I I'm never going to be as good as they are and you know do I even know what I'm talking about and every time you know every time I post on social media uh, before I press that post button I do get that little shot of fear and sickness and like is anyone going to care what I've got to say 
am I just telling you to suck eggs? And then you get obviously the lovely comments and the engagement and you think, oh, don't worry, it's okay. But yeah, even now, I full transparency, I work with a business coach because I have a lot of uh, baggage around setting up a business that comes mm. with the kind of inner work around feeling valued and earning money in a certain way and getting external validation and doubting my competency. So yeah, it's completely normal. Again, so any new graduates or any new business owners that feel like this, it's totally normal. So yeah, one of the ways that I've tried to support myself so that I can show up for my clients and be the best practitioner available to them is just investing in that bit of business coaching, which has really helped. And then going forward with the business, what are your hopes for it? And what do you want to get out of your career in nutritional therapy now? So for me, it's all about the women that I can help and all the people that I'm kind of here to serve. And that's, I don't know if that sounds really cheesy and trite, but (laughs) it's genuinely kind of not about me. It's all about them. Even just from seeing people in February to to now, where are we? Nearly May. In just a few short months, I've had, I tend to work with people, like I said, in that three, three to five months period. I'm just starting to see people tail off in the first of their sort of three month periods and getting that lovely feedback and hearing other clients, friends and family give them feedback about how well they're looking and how brighter they're doing and, um, you know, all of the lovely things around like their periods regulating and stuff, that's keeping me going. So I definitely will always, always have clinic and some form or description. So like I said, I like the blended approach. I like that I've got flexibility around my little boy. I do a commuter clinic in the evening for people who are working, who prefer to see me in the evenings at home. And then I've got that local physical clinical presence um, if you're ever in Bedfordshire. And I also do lots of stuff online. So I'm also working with other practitioners, supporting their businesses, doing sort of research for books that other practitioners are writing because I love research. Research was the big nerd moment for me at Ion. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And I think the module on where you have to sort of completely analyse a scientific paper for me, I think that was one of my favourite ones. It was, yeah, brilliant. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of work in the kind of research area and just collaborating with really lovely brands that are in this space because... There are some amazing companies that are doing really great things in health and research. I mean, like, you know, Bear Biology, In Vivo, all of their products are grounded in science. And I just, yeah, and especially sort of female-led businesses as well. So I've got loads of different ideas. I want to, like, when we can get back to normal, I want to start running more workshops and be kind of more physically available to start seeing people. That would be lovely. But I'm also built into my business model I did a post on Instagram the other day about paying it forward because it was National Pay It Forward Day this week. And it's really, really important to me that I know healthcare can be quite prohibitive and can be quite expensive because we're not available on the NHS at the moment. Yeah, we really should be, but one day maybe. And I know that lots of people sometimes find the cost of clinic just out completely out of their reach, but they're desperate for support and advice. So in addition to the kind of free stuff that people get on social media and in my newsletter and things... I will always build into my business opportunities for pro bono clinic for people who are not able to spend that money at the moment. And yeah, so essentially a day in the life of a nutritional therapist is just, it's not your nine to five. I love that there's all these different opportunities to work with different companies. And like you you know, yourself, there's lots of different um, ideas. And I think if you are considering a career in nutritional therapy and you're sort of wondering how you make money, there's lots of different ways. It is incredibly rewarding. So yeah, watch this space, I guess. Better get, better get cracking. <laughs> You've set yourself up here. Oh, God, I have, <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a really great note to end on. Katie, would you be up for a little quick fire round to finish? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so this is Quick Fire with Katie Shaw. Sweet or savoury? Sweet. Pancakes or porridge? All pancakes. Eggs poached or scrambled? Always poached. Walnuts or hazelnuts? Hazelnuts. Banana bread or courgette cake? Or courgette cake. 
Feta or halloumi? Oh no, don't give me cheese. Uh, uh, feta. And squash or beetroot? Oh, squash. Squash. I am actually a squash addict and my partner, he hates me. When we get our veg box delivery, I order extra squashes and I use them to decorate the house. And um, <laughs> he tries to throw them away, but I know what he's doing. He moves them closer to the kitchen bin and I just see them migrating across the kitchen. If you ever see my house or you ever come around my house, guaranteed, doesn't matter what time of year there are, there will be butternut squash, pumpkins, you name it. It's Halloween all year round. It is in my house. That is exactly it. It's Halloween all year. (laughs) Katie, where can people find you if they'd like to come and work with you? So my website is due to launch in a couple of weeks. It will just be www.katieshaw.com. And then I'm on Instagram under Katie L. Shaw. So that's K-A-T-I-E-L-S-H-O-R-E. I've also got a Facebook page by the same name, Katie L. Shaw. And it'll pop up Katie Shaw Nutrition. All the contact details are on there. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. For more information about nutritional therapy, why not subscribe to Optimum Nutrition magazine? Visit ION's website, ion.ac.uk forward slash magazine for details. You can also follow us on social media at ION underscore nutrition.